I'm Pastor Tim, and welcome to our 90 Minutes on Identity. couple things before we pray and jump in. Um, first of all, we will move quickly this morning through the different themes, and that's because this is an overview of a massive topic. And so that means you've got to be aware of a couple things. One, I'm going to put a lot of quotes on the screen. Some of the time you might think, oh, that's good. I'd like to write that down, but I won't give you time. So uh, if you just know that from the beginning, you can come back to the stream later, find all those quotes, pause it, but I, uh, we can't uh, slow down that much. And second of all, there are going to be points where you're like, could we please just stop and park on that and talk about it for a while? But it's a 90-minute seminar, not a nine-hour seminar. And what we do Sunday after Sunday is stop and park on things. That's what we do in, in God's Word. So this is, this is the big, big picture. Let's, let's say a word of prayer here before we dive in. Father, I express to you this morning our, our dependence on you, our need for you, and ask for your help that as we try to consider what, where our world is at and then what is true and real, that you would help us see what's real. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, who are you? It has been called the king of the questions. In 2015, the New York Times called it the year we obsessed about our identity. Somehow it's 2023 and we're more obsessed than we were in 2015, eight years later. So, who are you? On the inside of your booklet, you see a list of some of the things that people consider to be factors in their identity. I'm not necessarily validating every single thing on this list. I'm just giving us a broad list of examples. Who are you? Well, you might be your name, your legal name, or some nicknames that you go by. Uh, when we talk about identity theft, we're talking about your identification numbers partly, right? Social security numbers and so forth. What about your ancestry, your race, your family history? In our family, we like milk and we like cheese and we have an easy excuse for our love for ice cream because dad was a dairy farmer. It's who we are. Have to eat ice cream. How about your culture, your ethnicity, your nation, your citizenship. I'm, of course, first and foremost an American, but that's not the only nation that has significance to me. For example, my daughter just met a girl from Sweden and told her, hey, I've got relatives from Sweden. How about your social class, your geography? This is one we might not think of right away, but for many Southern Californians, the beach is part of who they are. Listen to country music and being from a small town is part of who you are. It's identity. How about home and property? Are you from the big city, from a high-rise, from a farm? Then there's sex, biological sex, sexual attraction, sexual activity, gender association. How about education? Didn't finish high school or PhD or how about skills? Maybe you're a cabinet maker or you have your CDL, your career, your goals, like a young person might be an ROTC. That's part of who they are because of where they're headed. 
Your music preferences. Have you ever had somebody tell you what kind of music they like and you thought, oh, that is not what I was expecting you to say? How about sports activities? I play soccer. For better or worse, I feel too much like it's part of who I am. At least when I lose, I do. How about your sports loyalties? I, this Tesla was at Costco uh, two days ago. I don't think it is Fernando Tatis. I think it's just somebody who, well, I'll show you again later. Um, how about your family religion? Were you baptized as an infant? Is there a family religious loyalty? How about personal religion? Did you go down on the field at a harvest crusade or in some other way convert to a religion? How about your body? We say things like, she's a redhead, and that means more than just hair color. He's a bodybuilder. How about illnesses? I'm a cancer survivor, a cancer patient. How about disabilities? How about stores and brands? I drive fill-in-the-blank. I have an iPhone or an Android. I wear these brands of clothes. How about your volunteerism, your philanthropy, or the causes that you're really passionate about and support? How about animals or pets? Are you a horse lover or a, a cat lady? I'm not a cat lady, but you probably knew that already. How about your creative endeavors, the art, the literature you produce, or just being a creative, you know, like, I'm a musician. How about your wealth or lack of it? Your partner, are you dating, engaged, married, divorced, widowed, single? How about your children? Are they part of who you are? Your grandchildren and so forth? How about your personality? Are you an empath, an introvert, type A, Enneagram type 6? Who are you? How about your experiences, what you've done, your successes? For a lot of people, partly it's your failures. How about your reputation? Is that what identity is? Your own self-esteem and how you think about yourself. How many of those things have some importance for you personally? Can you give me a number? There are 38 things on that list. Really quickly estimate. Run your finger down the list. Of those 38, how many would you say... Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of an important part of who I am. Don't hyper-spiritualize this and be like, nope, all I have is Christ. One. It's not what I'm asking. My, my answer is 16. Okay? So go ahead. How many of those things? Run down the list. Run your finger down the list. How many of those things do you think are a pretty important part of who you are? And what we're going to take a vote here in a minute. A poll. All right, time's up. How many of you say at least five of those things are pretty important? Let me see your hands. At least five. Okay, at least 10 of those things are pretty important for who I am. At least 15 of those things are pretty important for who I am. All right, now here's what's interesting about that. Our culture tends to obsessively focus on a very small number of those. A couple of decades ago, all the focus was on sexual orientation, homosexuality, and so forth. A few years ago, it was on things like BLM, and everything was about race. Right now, everything is about gender. It's like the world says, we found it. We found the one thing that really makes your identity count. And then a few years later, they move on to something else. In reality, the picture of identity has a lot of different 
pieces. And do you think your answers today are somewhat different than they would have been 10 years or 20 years ago? Has anything shifted in your what's important to your identity? And what if your relationships change moving forward? What if your health changes? What if your hopes and dreams don't work out? Or what if they do? And to ask the hardest question of all, what will death mean for your identity? When most of the things on that list are not options any longer, who are you? Who will you be? Four themes this morning, culture, creation, crisis, and new creation. Let's jump right in to culture. And rather than having to say the word culture or society a couple hundred times this morning, I'm going to use the term world just because it's easier to say. But what I mean is our society, our culture, especially Western culture, American culture that we live in. What is the world's view of identity? There is an understanding of identity that is almost the default in our world today. It is the default. Not everyone fully agrees with it, but most people mostly agree. And it goes like this. Number one, I own me. I know grammarians, I should say myself, but you know, the world says, you do you. So I'm kind of riffing off of that theme. I own me. You are your own. Your life belongs 100% to yourself. Number two, I define me. Life is like a do-it-yourself project. You define the meaning of your own life. There is a very famous quote about this from Anthony Kennedy. This is in the Casey case, Supreme Court case, 1992, reaffirming abortion rights. He wrote this, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Wow. You get to define what even life itself means, or else you are not free. Number three, I discover me by looking in me. Since you own yourself and define yourself, then the only place to discover yourself is inside yourself. Self-discovery is like our contemporary hero's journey. It's how you be a hero. Listen to your heart. Listen to your desires. That is who you truly are. And then I do me. Once you discover your true identity in what your heart feels and wants, then you have to act on that. Or you're not being true to yourself. Your desires are your identity. And so above all else, you must follow your heart. Aladdin asks, tell me, princess, now when did you last let your heart decide to do just what I want you to do? <laughs> this is related to autonomy. I make my own laws. And it's related to freedom. I must be completely free to follow my heart. But we have to have a step five here. Number five, you applaud me. Because as much as we might deny it, something in us wants to be validated by others. We find that out as soon as somebody tells us they think we did a bad job of something. Identity is always connected to what other people think. And so as you do you, it is essential for you to express yourself publicly and for the people around you, not just to tolerate you, but applaud you. Because as you follow your heart, that's your very 
essence. That's not just what you do. That's who you are. Your identity is on display. So I own me. I define me. I discover me by looking in me. I do me, and you applaud me. And there, we could ask, well, is there some truth in that? Are there some strengths to that? And, and there are. There are some kernels of truth that underlie that, because human beings are very special. They're uniquely important. We have an inner self-awareness that is unique. Um, somebody said, what makes humans distinct from animals is that we can say, I, the sense of self-awareness. Each of us is a completely unique individual. And then there are other ideas here that are true, like the idea of um, authenticity, which we'll talk about later. It's true that you want there to be um, uh, consistency between who you are on the inside and who you appear to be on the outside. And it's also true that we should encourage the potential of people and what you could do and not genuinely oppress people and so forth. So there are some kernels of truth in this. And it certainly is broadly accepted. Countless movies and TV shows and songs and ads and politicians and athletes and educators all agree, you do you. This is so broadly accepted that I think it would be fair to call it the new cultural religion. These are just absolute truths to most people. It's so broadly accepted that it's hard for people to imagine that there might be any other possibility. To ask them to consider anything else would be asking, like asking a fish to imagine what it's like living out of water. Most people today can't imagine anything except this view of identity. And yet, it is quite new. The term identity as we use it today was not even widely used until the 1970s. And the things on this list would have sounded really strange to people like my grandparents. So how did this happen? What is the source of the world's view? And the history isn't our point this morning, um, but it's probably best to trace the roots back to the European Enlightenment. For example, 1641, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. 1780s, Rousseau's Confessions, he says, the particular object of my confessions is to make known my inner self. All I need to do, as I have done up until now, is to look inside myself. If we jump ahead, we could probably credit Freud with turning this in a dominantly sexual direction. 1930s, he writes about man's discovery that sexual love afforded him with the prototype of all happiness. And then other influences like Karl Marx further advance the ideas like oppression, that anybody who suggests any limits or anything on you is an oppressor of you. And then, of course, Darwin, whose evolutionary theory makes it possible to imagine a world in which there is no God, and therefore you can yourself be the center of everything. You can essentially be like God. I am sure that those Enlightenment thinkers of the 1600s and 1700s imagined that through this Enlightenment, humanity would soon flourish in amazing ways, that we were headed toward a glorious age of human happiness that was dawning. The nice thing is we got a few hundred years of human history to see if they were right. How's it going? We have a world in crisis. The headlines illustrate it. I'm not going to spend any time on that. The latest statistics about everything from mental health to crime illustrate it. Here are just a few phrases I grabbed from a few different sources. 
We're seeing catastrophic levels of depression and anxiety. Self-medicating is the norm, and many of the means of self-medication are addictive. People are depressed and inadequate, anxious and addicted, exhausted and empty. I'm going to refer to the relational wreckage of our age and its resulting emotional misery. Just this week, I was reading a secular newsletter, and the writer said, we are more affluent than any society in the history of the world. So why do so many feel so empty? So here's the question that none of the fish are asking. Is it possible that there's something wrong with this? It never even crosses the mind of most people that something might be wrong with this. Everybody is persuaded that this is the solution. And yet our culture is in crisis. So what we're doing this morning is daring to question this. Are there some weaknesses of the world's view? And here I'm going to introduce you to a series of themes that will tie together all that we'll talk about this morning. The blanks that you're going to fill in next, we're going to come back to, um, basically, we're going to look at them four times uh, this morning. So, first of all, does the world's view of identity align with reality? You can be anything you want to be, we say to the boy who will never be more than 5'6", 125, which rules out several options, including the NFL. The National Women's Soccer League just started their new season, and they are aggressively promoting transgenderism, which has led some people to ask the question, what does the W mean in NWSL? Is it just some sort of psychological category? What is a women's soccer league that aggressively promotes transgenderism? I understand that imagination can be fun, but it seems like we're trying to live in a world in which there's no difference between imagination and reality. It doesn't matter if Ariel is a mermaid if she wants to not be a mermaid. Wouldn't you think I'm the girl, the girl who has everything? But who cares? No big deal. I want more, meaning I want to be a human not a mermaid. And don't worry, true love always turns the imaginary into reality. Now, I know somebody might say, that's an old cartoon. <laughs> old, Pastor Tim. We know it's not real. Okay, but does it fit with the modern understanding of identity? If you can dream it, you can be it. Kind of like Olaf, when I finally do what frozen things do, in summer. And Kristoff says, I'm going to tell him. And Anna says, don't you dare. Why doesn't he need told what happens to snow in summer? Because Elsa is going to create his own private flurry that's going to follow him around. And he can be a snowman in summer. Something else Aladdin sings to Jasmine. I didn't put it up here, but he sings, no one to tell us no or say we're only dreaming. We don't want anybody to tell us we're just dreaming. I say this kind of lightheartedly and kind of not. If Amazon started selling a product that turned little girls into unicorns, I think there might be a, little girl, a lot of girls who'd go for that because of what they've had pounded into them. We've lost our grip on reality. We're so determined to tell people that they have unlimited potential 
with no boundaries of any type that we've lost, lost, we've lost touch of what's real. Secondly, does the world's view of identity support healthy relationships? Does it support healthy relationships? Well, I own me. I define me. I discover me by looking in me. I do me. You applaud me. There's a theme here, right? <clears throat> does that support healthy relationships? So <clears throat> I mentioned this poll a couple weeks ago. Here's an update to a Wall Street Journal poll first taken in 1998. This shows the results from 98, 2019, and then the arrow is the actually the dot for 2023, the most recent results from this March. Note that, so this is asking the percentage of people who say that these values are very important to them. Patriotism, religion, having children, community involvement, and money. Note that those first four have a lot to do with relationships. Your relationships with your fellow citizens, your faith communities, your families, your neighborhoods. And in each case, the 2023 poll shows that people's interest in these things is plummeting. One secular writer said, it's the sort of poll that if America were your best friend or child, you'd urge her to seek help. But it's really no surprise because the modern view of identity is all about me, me, me. Man is born utterly dependent on others, but everywhere tries to persuade himself that such an obvious fact is not actually true. Now, I, we all understand that relationships can be hurtful in a broken world. I'm not saying that all relationships are good, but that we are our true selves within relationships. They are part of who we are. I am an American. I have a relationship to fellow citizens in that sense. I am a member of Grace Bible Church. I am a son, a husband, a father. My brother's here, by the way, today. So if you see two Tims, don't freak out. <laughs> I live in Menifee Lakes. Those relationships are part of who I am. I coach an adult soccer team. All of these relationships to varying degrees are part of who I am. But the world's view of identity actually tears apart relationships. For example, marriage. Marriage is a lifelong, no matter what kind of commitment. But if my identity requires that I always follow my heart, I cannot make a lifelong commitment to anybody. Marriage can only be a fun little thing for a little while until my heart wants something else, or yours does. The same is true for parenting. Parenting has many joys, but it is also much hard work and self-sacrifice over decades. I saw an article at Easter urging people to not buy bunnies at Easter just because they're cute. And the article was telling them bunnies are actually a lot of work, and they live a long time. Think about it before you buy bunnies at Easter. So why would I want to have children if my true identity is found in staying completely focused on myself and what my heart wants? I mean, you'll have days when having a baby seems really cool. But you might have a day a year or 10 or 15 years later when it does not seem as cool anymore. It seems really hard. The world's view of identity essentially means that I can never commit to any long-term relationships. If we follow the world's view of identity, it is also important that we live in a country where the government takes care of the poor, the mentally ill, the, dis the, the disabled, and the elderly. So that we don't have to worry about the care of any of those people 
because we're all just worrying about what our heart wants to make us happy. The world's view of identity also suggests that it's okay to be obsessed with your own happiness and to ignore the consequences of your choices on others. So, for example, our culture says that in any sexual encounter, if the people directly involved in the sexual encounter consent, then it is fine. Right? That's what everybody says. If the people involved in the sexual encounter consent, then it is fine. But is there anyone else whose consent might be important? What if one of the people involved already has a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or children? Who cares? Follow your heart. Yikes. Do you see? The world's view of identity does not support healthy relationships. It tears at them. Next, does the world's view of identity give life real meaning? We could also use the word purpose. Well, in the world's view, your only meaning comes from inside of yourself. That's it. So let me just quote from a secular source again. For too long, we've been told we can be anything, do anything, and that all criticisms of that anything are an attack on our identity and very being. That self-love and self-care are all we need to thrive. And yet, we've never seemed more miserable, never been more lost, and never less confident in what we stand for. Maybe one day, the all-knowing AI will tell us the truth. Find a purpose outside yourself. Wow. Does the world's view of identity result in true freedom and authenticity? Freedom is everyone's favorite word today. No matter who you are in the political spectrum, where you are on the political spectrum. But do you ever suspect that we're more a bunch of lemmings than we realize? Here are some reasons to think that's the case. First, identity has been sexualized. As I mentioned before, the Freudian idea that sex is the very essence of your identity dominates our culture today, and there is intense pressure on every person who lives in our culture to have a sexual relationship or relationships, and if they can't have that in person, there is endless pornography to fill the void, and now AI can create even more endless pornography and all of this is pushed on people relentlessly. Is that freedom? Secondly, identity has been digitized. Earlier, I showed you the Padre's Tesla. I think we should zoom in on his back window. And what will we find? His Instagram handle, which I am now promoting for him. This is Friar Faithful. Nothing wrong with that, of course. But here's the point. If Friar Faithful walked out of Costco while you were looking at his car, you might say to him, hey, are you Friar Faithful? Who cares what your name is? You are your Instagram handle. You are your digital profile. Your identity is now digitized. Everything you post online adds to your profile. Social media is not just where you show the world what you're eating for dinner. It's where you tell the world who you are. 
the average preteen in America has the same basic tools for publicity that only the biggest Hollywood stars had 60 years ago. Your online identity is also where you get applause and can feel like you have value. And the companies who build those platforms know how to make them as addictive as possible. This is causing tremendous harm. This last week was the week when a number of states finally started passing legislation to try to limit the media harm on teens of social media, Utah being the first of those. Identity has been digitized. Identity has been commercialized. That sounds like a page turn. A page turn? All right. Identity has been commercialized. Once our identities have been digitized, they then exist in a marketplace where we compete with other people for attention. And you can literally measure how you're doing, how successful your identity is by counting followers and engagement. And of course, once identity has been commercialized, then identity gets monetized. The more money you have, the more you can purchase popularity. You can purchase clothes or cars or trips to exotic locations or beauty treatments or endless ways you can spend money to then boost your digitized identity, build your personal brand. A major portion of our economy is based on the myth that we need to be someone unique. It is the logic guiding many modern industries like entertainment, fashion, and social media. These are massive corporations generating billions upon billions of dollars in revenue each year from people who feel an overwhelming burden to be seen so that they feel real and significant. So is the world's view of identity actually setting us free? Identity has also been politicized. The news media has figured out that identity issues create hype and attract viewers and build their numbers. And so many news stories focus not on the event itself, but the identities of the people involved. Politicians have then discovered that they can get a lot of money and a lot of votes by telling people that your identity is at issue in this next election. This next election, if you don't give me enough money, is going to tear apart your very identity. And it works. Oh, does it work in politics? Again, I ask, does all of this actually set people free? Here's the way one 20-something said it. This is Sky Peterson. I suspect my generation, Gen Z, has a particularly thick mass of identity crisis to wade through. The world screams, be you, and your choice, and your truth. Yet it also screams, be like us, and choose our way, and our truth is the right truth. It's dizzying. And I really like this quote. This is from Naomi Klein and Christopher Walken. We live in a double world. Carnival on the surface, and consolidation underneath where it counts. We are sold the carnival and find ourselves signing up to be pawns in the consolidation. In other words, outwardly, our culture claims that we're all part of a carnival of freedom, all of us doing our own thing, you be you, creating our own lives. 
But when you look underneath the surface, you discover that powerful influences are shaping our identities, swallowing up, swallowing up our time, using up what's in our wallets. It is less like a carnival and more like a spooky scene where everyone is marching kind of zombie-like to the exact same drumbeat. What's the drumbeat? I didn't put it up there. It's I own me. I define me. I discover me. I do me. You applaud me. And we all march along. A final reason to question whether the world's view of identity leads to true freedom and authenticity is this. The human heart has been idolized. In other words, is following your heart actually freedom? Has your heart ever misled you? Have you ever made a decision and then later said, what was I thinking? Have you ever realized that you've been fooling yourself? Our hearts can want things that ruin us, and our hearts can want things that ruin others. There are times when we must say no to ourselves. But the human heart has been idolized to where that is not an option. And so... The world's view of identity does not result in true freedom and authenticity. Does the world's view of identity then, moving on to another big theme, does it give us any clarity about morality? Though we want the freedom to do whatever we want, most people also want to be able to say, I'm a pretty good person. But to measure something you have to have a scale or a ruler that is separate from the thing you're measuring. But in the world's view, there is no standard except yourself, which means, in Elsa's book of theology, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. The only source of right and wrong is whatever your heart wants at the current moment. We've cast aside family and religion and traditions, and teachers, and any authority that might try to tell us there's some rule, or line, or boundary, and so therefore there's no ruler or scale left. We each have our own private morality, which might change five minutes from now if I change my mind, and so there is therefore no morality at all. Next, does the world's view of identity encourage responsibility? To a large degree, we've already answered that, right? Because we've talked about relationships. It does not encourage responsibility in relationships. We've talked about morality. It does not encourage responsibility there. And yet, the irony is that the world's view of identity actually places upon you more responsibility than you were ever meant to bear because it places upon you the responsibility to be your own God. Get to work finding yourself, defining yourself, creating yourself because you own yourself. And none of us are going to help you because <laughs> we're too busy trying to do all that for our own selves. So have fun. But keep us updated on social media and how it's going. One author calls it crushing individualism. And I really appreciate the way in which Alan Noble describes the two general ways that people respond to this responsibility affirmation or resignation. Basically, those who respond with affirmation say, I can be my own God. I can create my own life. I can define my own reality. Awesome. Let's go. And they are 110% in on this, on this create your own 
life thing. And then those who respond with resignation say, this is impossible. I am not smart enough to keep up with all these people. I'm not strong enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I can't figure out how to use Instagram well enough. I might as well just stay on the couch and play video games. I'm at least kind of good at that. The affirming accept the challenge to be their own God and go at it full speed ahead. The resigned say, this is impossible. Why even try? And in both cases, the most common result is anxiety and depression. You see what I'm saying? In one sense, the world's view of identity discourages responsibility. While in another sense, it places on us the greatest responsibility of all, and that is to be our own God. So, does the world's view of identity result in peace? We've already noted that it doesn't result in peace in relationships, peace in society. But does it bring us personal peace? Well, at least the statistics right now surely say no. Finally, does the world's view of identity allow us to reach our full potential? Because that's what it claims to do. And I think that all of our previous questions have answered this question. (laughs) If we're not aligning with reality, if we're not encouraging healthy relationships, if we're not providing moral clarity, if we're not giving people true freedom and so forth, then no, we're not helping anybody reach their full potential. We might be messing them up. I own me, I define me, I discover me by looking in me, I do me, you applaud me. Is it possible that that is a journey with no destination, a bridge to nowhere? Under the guise and belief of doing good, it is in reality doing immeasurable damage to countless human lives. It tells lies about who people are, and convincing them of false identities justifies actions which are destructive of self, of others, and of future generations. All right, here we go. We've talked about culture. Now let's consider creation crisis, new creation. And now we're going to start looking at what the Bible says. Since the world's view of identity is off track, and is causing great damage, it is worth it to look at an alternative. Now, I realize the Bible is not the only alternative, but the Bible is the best-selling and most influential book in human history. So first of all, it's at least worth considering what its answers would be. The Bible also claims to be the Word of God. If it's the Word of God, then God would be the expert on human identity and would be the one to listen to. If you ask me, why do you believe Christianity is true? from a practical, factual standpoint. I think my top three answers, not necessarily in any order, would be because there's no other book like the Bible, because there's significant historical evidence for the death, burial, and the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And thirdly, because I believe the Bible explains human reality better than any other explanation I've ever seen. That is just for me personally a very, very important reason why I'm a Christian factually. So we've seen the world's view of identity. Let's consider God's, and that must begin with creation. In the beginning, God. That flips the world's view inside out. I'm not the center of everything. God is. God gave the Jewish people a name for himself. It is Yahweh. Sometimes you hear that, Jehovah. And that name means I am It is a word of self-existence. He is. He always has been. 
He always will be as the self-existence one. All the rest of us get our existence from somebody else. From our parents, of course, but ultimately from him. We receive our existence from him. In the beginning, God created. Everything exists because God called it into existence. Neither stars nor trees nor rocks nor human beings are independent, self-supporting entities. What we are is therefore entirely non-negotiable. Humans did not choose to exist any more than a brick chose to be a brick or a pencil chose to be a pencil. And then there's another very important way to say it, and it introduces a very important word. We received life from God as a gift of his grace. Life is a gift of God's grace. He created a marvelous world, incredibly fine-tuned to support human beings, And then he breathed life into us as a gift. So let's use the same questions that we asked about the world's identity. Let's use those same themes and let's consider creation. Does creation provide a view of identity that aligns with reality? Yes, reality is that God is the center of everything, not me. And I was actually created in such a way that I find my greatest joy in loving and worshiping him. That is reality, whether I choose to accept it or not. That is who I am. God also created male and female in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 2, male and female correspond to man and woman. And marriage is between one man and one woman at the end of Genesis 2. And then bearing children is a good part, important part of God's purposes. Humanity has a unique nature, according to creation in Genesis, different than and above all the rest of the animals. The the DNA of God's creation defines us, both in the literal, physical sense and in a spiritual sense. We are human beings crafted by God, and that is real. And I would say that what what society has done is take the blueprint of human reality and rip it into pieces and then hand people the shreds and say, here, now you figure it out. Who are you? Creation provides a view of identity that aligns with reality. Does it provide a view of identity that supports healthy relationships? Yes. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve were to live in interdependent relationships, holding fast. That's the phrase in Genesis 2. Holding fast in loyal love. People want loyalty. I mean, after all, isn't that why he's friar faithful? I'm loyal to my team. We were wired for loyalty. When Cain killed Abel, God immediately held him responsible because he should have been his brother's keeper. The law that God gave to Israel was built upon the foundation of loving your neighbor as yourself. God created people to sacrificially love one another in committed relationships. Does creation provide, next, does it provide a view of identity that gives life real meaning? Oh, does it ever It gives us meaning, first of all, because it says we, as human beings, are personally known and cared for by God. If you go look up where the Bible asks the question, who are you? The number one Bible answer is, you are someone known and cared for by God. Psalm 8, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. Here's the question, what is a human being that you remember him? a son of man, that you look after him. Psalm 144, Lord, what is a human 
that you care for him. A son of man, that you think of him. Job 7, what is a mere human that you think so highly of him and pay so much attention to him? In the midst of all of this amazing creation, it is human beings who receive God's special knowledge and care. We don't invent our own meaning. We have meaning because God knows us and cares for us. And not only that, but God created us in his image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, that's a topic way too big for us to tackle this morning. But creation in the image of God mean, means that human beings are a reflection of God in a way that's different from all the rest of creation. You are not just a more evolved animal. We didn't accidentally rise to the top of the evolutionary chart. God made humans to especially know him and in some ways even to be like him, to be his images. And not only that, but God also called us then to a very important role in his creation because Genesis 1 continues, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God called us to oversee the earth on his behalf. He created an amazing world with all sorts of potential to be an amazing place where people could flourish. And he called humans to develop that potential for human flourishing, to rule the earth for him. So while the world says, figure out your own meaning, the Bible says God already gave you meaning. You are known and cared for by him, created in his image, and called to a very important role in his creation. So then, does creation provide a view of identity that results in true freedom and authenticity? I'm going to talk about this more later, but basically, yes, because who we really are is who we are is created by God. Freedom and authenticity aren't, find in, aren't found in imagining your own reality, but in living in the light of the true and beautiful creation of God. More on that later. Does creation provide a view of identity that gives clarity about morality? Of course it does, because God's in charge. God makes the rules based on his perfect character and based on the way the world is supposed to work. So worshiping any other God is wrong, no matter how much you want to do it or are sincere about it. And in God's world, people are supposed to love one another loyally and sacrificially. And if you don't, that's wrong. So when Elsa says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, that's cool because she's pixels. But real people... I mean, it's not cool, but you know what I'm saying. We can make up that world. We can imagine a world in which she can say that. But in the real world, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as no right, no wrong, no rules for me because God created you and he's in charge. He defines right and wrong and he does it with perfect wisdom and love. Does creation provide a view of identity that encourages responsibility? Wow, yes, because God created all this. And God put us responsible for caring for his creation. We are gardening and farming and taking care of animals that he created. We are loving other people whom God created. We are making music and paintings and movies using the wonders of color and sound and rhythm that God created and wired into our minds and hearts. So we are marvelously responsible to God because our lives have so much meaning in his creation. Does creation provide a view of identity that results in peace? Well, foundationally, there's a lot of peace in knowing I'm not God and that God knows me and that I can live as God's little child in his wonderful creation. Does creation provide 
a view of identity that allows us to reach our full potential. You see how I'm just going back through that same list from earlier? Same themes. Full potential. What is your full potential? It is what God created you to be in His creation for His glory. So much potential. You know, science is the study of what God has created because He created an incredible world of potential to develop. And not only that, God created each one of us to be unique. We sang earlier in our service, if you were here for the worship portion, we sang, all I have is Christ. And there's a sense in which that's true, but I hope by the end today we'll realize that doesn't mean that you individually don't matter. There are a lot of parts of your identity. It doesn't matter if you can't sing or dance like someone else, if you can't lift weights or run fast like someone else, if you can't teach or build or invent like someone else. God has gifted you to be you. In that sense, you be you is true. God has gifted you to be you, and your full potential is found not in chasing after the world's identity lies, but in knowing God and being who he created you to be. Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Creation is full of grace. It's the grace of God to us, even as individuals. But you might be thinking, I don't know, Pastor Tim. Creation seems pretty messed up to me. And that's true. It is because of the crisis. Despite God's amazing creation, Adam and Eve sinned. They fell. We fell from what God created us to be. Now, sin is not dignifying. However, the, the truth that we have fallen is actually good news in this sense. If we have not fallen from something better that we were created to be, then this mess that we see when we look in the news every day is the best we've got after two million years of human evolution. This is the furthest we've gotten. It is actually far better news to know that in the beginning God created and it was very good. And then we sinned and we messed it up with our sin. We have fallen and sin became like the ultimate cancer. So what happened? Now the serpent, Genesis 3, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, which probably means having the right to decide good and evil, define good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And from that came the curse upon creation, on work, on relationships. From that, every sinner became, every human being became a sinner. From that came the physical and spiritual death that comes upon all humanity today. Read the headlines today, and you're reading the results of Genesis 3. So what really happened there in the Garden of Eden? What was going on there? If we had to simply summarize what happened in the garden, how could we summarize it? 
How about this? Adam and Eve set aside God and decided to be God themselves. They decided that they were in charge. They made the rules. They were going to decide right and wrong. They were going to follow their hearts. Therefore, the very thing that the world today tells people is the key to their identity, those are the very things that crushed humanity, plunging it into the crisis that continues today. The new cultural religion isn't new at all. It's the same old lie that the devil told Eve in the garden. And it's centered around pride. Pride that I can be the center of everything, not God. Pride that makes my desires the ultimate truth. Pride that makes my identity the ultimate reality. And all of that is so backwards and the consequences have been devastating. We believed lies instead of reality, blew apart our relationships, gutted life of its true meaning, became slaves of sin rather than free, made our sinful hearts the source of our morality, abandoned all of our God-given responsibility, lost our peace with God and others, and gutted our potential. And in the process, we lost sight of our true identity. Ever since that crisis, human identity has been badly compromised. For example, before the flood, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. After the flood, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is a, I mean, this is the John 3.16 passage, right? It's a passage about promise in Christ, but those terms in yellow also reveal the truth about human identity after the crisis in Eden. We need a savior. We actually need a new creation. Though we have rebelled against God and tried to replace God with ourselves in love, God sent a savior for us. You see how remarkable it is that God sent a savior when the whole point of what happened with sin was our rebellion against him as God? Like we just tried to kick God out of the way and replace him with ourselves. And yet he's the one who sends the savior for us. The Savior was, of course, Jesus. What did Jesus do? First, he perfectly lived true human identity. He always loved and worshiped God, always loved others, never sinned, fulfilled all righteousness. Then he laid down his life to pay the penalty for our sin. The righteous died for the unrighteous in our place to bring us back to God. He paid the full penalty of our sin so that we can be forgiven. And it's not only that, it's more than just Though as amazing as it is that our sin was credited to Jesus and he died for our sin, his righteousness is also credited back to us so that we stand before God justified. It's like 
God washes away the guilt of our sin and then clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And then Jesus rose so that all, to come to, all who come to him will receive eternal life. They become a new creation. And each of these blessings is the free gift of God for those who humble themselves in repentance and believe the good news that Jesus died and rose again for them. So that saving work of Jesus, which I just flew through in two minutes, gives us the opportunity to be restored to our true identity. So for one final time, let's consider those themes that we've been through three times already this morning. Here's our fourth time now. Becoming a new creation in Christ re-anchors our identity in reality. Not primarily how I feel or what I want. My identity is who I really am. Now, I, we all understand that to say your identity is who you really are is kind of frightening in one sense, right? Because we all know ourselves too well. And yet, it is when we have Christ that we can then have the courage to look at reality. My identity is who I really am. And reality starts with this. I am someone who belongs to God. To say that I own myself is to deny reality. For God owns me in two beautiful ways. First of all, we've already seen one of them. He owns me because he created me. But then, in Christ, he recreated me, or he made me a new creation spiritually. So God is the author of both my physical and my spiritual life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's my true identity, owned by God, doubly created by him. And then beyond that, I'm also forgiven, justified before God. That's more real than my digitized identity, than my imagined identity. There is no need for you to express your identity to make it more solid or to compete in the ever-growing marketplace of images because your personhood doesn't need affirmation from other humans to make it valid. Your true identity is not a publicly projected image that requires regular maintenance, upgrades, and optimization. Your identity is who you are before God, your personhood, your existence in the world. Next, becoming a new creation in Christ provides the foundation for healthy relationships. The world's view of identity damages them. Christ rebuilds them. And that begins with the most important relationship of all, our relationship with God. The Bible describes it as being known and loved by God through Christ. Our names are written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life and engraved on the palms of his hands. Jesus is the great shepherd who calls his own sheep by name. The Bible says that before we loved him, he first loved us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But then the Bible has one term that it uses more than any other for your relationship with God. One term. And that is 
child of God. And that is also the Bible's central picture for your new identity in Christ. More than anything else, you are a child of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And that's our identity. So we are. That's not dependent on how you feel today. Praise God. It's real. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Your identity now is found in that one right relationship with God. And when that relationship is restored, then we have the opportunity to begin rebuilding all of those relationships with others. You know, we, where we once um, viewed other people as kind of like competitors in this game of life, in Christ, we, we view them as people created in the image of God. Yeah, people are sinners. People are difficult. But if God loved us and gave his son for us, we can love them. We can serve them. In Christ, we start to desire to serve others because Jesus came as a servant. In Christ, we're motivated to forgive others because Christ has forgiven us. In Christ, we want to care for the weak, the needy, the vulnerable, the vulnerable because that's who we were when Christ came to us. We want to tell others about Jesus so that they might find hope and life in him. We want to be loyal and faithful in our relationships so that people can count on us and depend on us because God is always faithful to us. We care about family because God is the author of marriage. God is the author of parenting. And then on top of all that, God also gives us a new family. His family. Because once you become a child of God, you got brothers and sisters. And if God has made you his child, then you're going to love the rest of his children. So he brings us together into church families. And the most common term for Christians in the Bible is brothers, brothers and sisters. That's who you are. What an incredible contrast that is to the ways the world damages relationships. Next, becoming a new creation in Christ gives life real meaning. We could talk about this all day. Um, just three quick examples. Meaning for our worship. You are created to worship God. And once you're taken down from the throne of your heart, God can go back on that throne and you can worship. Meaning for our choices. With every choice you make, every day, you have the opportunity to love God and love others. And that means everything every day matters. There is meaning for every part of your days. All the little moments. Thirdly, meaning for our suffering. Jesus was a man of sorrows and known for grief. And he promises to walk with us through our suffering, to ensure us that all of our sufferings have eternal meaning. Our earthly afflictions, he says, are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And so we don't have to take a hakuna matata approach to life. We can face our suffering head on together with Jesus, knowing that nothing in this life is wasted through Christ. Those are just brief examples of how being a new creation in Christ give our lives real meaning. I love this quote from Alan Noble. In Christ, I take comfort that the truest things in life are real things. That time spent with that little, my five-year-old daughter, that is real and really matters. That investment in this church family is real. That choice to obey God when nobody saw it except God was real and really matters forever. The truest things in life are real things. 
Becoming a new creation in Christ also results in true freedom and authenticity. Do you see the irony? We find true freedom in Christ when we stop believing the lie that we own ourselves. And when we understand instead that God has double rights to our lives because he created us and recreated us physically and spiritually. The Bible says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. And this language here of being bought and ransomed is the language of being set free from slavery. God's ownership is true freedom. It's freedom from the slavery of sin. It's freedom from the slavery of our idolatrous hearts. It's freedom from the eternal judgment of sin. It's freedom from these dying bodies being the end of us. It's freedom from the opinions and expectations of others. It's freedom from our idols. It's freedom from our past. To be owned by God is freedom from all those things. Here's a quote about our past from Brian Rosner that I, like, I appreciate. The cross means that we are not prisoners of our past. The defining moment of many people's lives is something they regret and of which they are deeply ashamed. The good news of the gospel is that our failures in life do not define us. That's freedom. We are now free to be who God created us to be. Not, not free to do whatever our hearts feel like. Free to be who we were created to be, the children of God, owned and loved by God, living for him. Sin binds, Christ frees. And this, actually this freedom in Christ being owned by God is actually true authenticity. In the words of Alan Noble, true authenticity is living transparently before God. This is a little, a lot of time we could spend on this, but basically the, the way the world views it is either you just follow your own heart and you're true to you, or you just put on a show of what everybody else wants to see. And the world says, well, you shouldn't put on a show of what everybody else wants to see. So therefore, to be authentic, all you can do is just follow your own heart. And the Bible says there are other options for what true authenticity is. First and foremost, it's not pretending I'm God. It's not hiding from God. But through Christ, being able to be transparent before God. He sees and knows everything about me. Yet he loves me and he forgives me and he welcomes me as his child because of what Jesus did for me. And when I can be transparent before God, then I don't have to put on a show for everybody else anymore. And as God begins to change my life, he brings more consistency between the outside and the inside. I can be truly authentic, which means walking humbly and honestly before God and others. That's only possible in Christ. Becoming a new creation in Christ also provides moral clarity. And there are two kinds of moral clarity that we need. The first is, who am I before God? Am I a good person? And secondly, how should I live? And Christ gives us both. First of all, are we good people? No. But because God washed us clean through Christ and then clothed us in Christ's righteousness, therefore I am justified. I am a saved sinner. God looks at me and says, you are not guilty. There is perfect moral clarity about who you are before the throne of God. But then the second question we need answered is, how should I live? And being a new creation in Christ gives such brilliant clarity to that. The answer is, like Jesus. 
by the Spirit of God, have your heart changed to be like the heart of Christ so that you might live like Christ. And you have God's Word. We have the Bible to show us Christ and guide us all along the way. So yes, it gives us moral clarity. Being a new, becoming a new creation in Christ encourages responsibility. This is so cool because it's like it brings us back to see how much responsibility we have to love God and love others, but it also tells us that we stand in grace, so it's not a crushing burden. God strengthens us for that responsibility. God forgives us when we fail in that responsibility. His grace is sufficient for us. Becoming a new creation in Christ also gives us peace. It gives us peace because we have peace with God. Our relationship with Him is not broken anymore. It's no coincidence that one of the most common blessings in the Christian tradition includes the image of God looking at us in the face, like in Numbers chapter 6. Our identity is grounded in the loving gaze of God. When we stand transparently before God, abandoning our efforts of self-establishment and confessing our sins and accepting His grace, we feel that loving gaze upon us. There's many, many other reasons why becoming a new creation in Christ gives us peace. You've got His Word to guide you. You can now talk to Him in prayer anytime, anywhere. We can trust that He's with us, that His grace is sufficient for us no matter what we might go through. It's just reason after reason for peace. Grace alone sustains us. When we accept the grace of God, rather than denying it and striving for self-sufficiency, the basis for every major contemporary anxiety is removed. He does not mean that you'll no longer struggle with anxiety, but he means that when we understand the grace of God in Christ that is completely sufficient for us, the actual foundation underneath every major contemporary anxiety is removed and replaced by the promises of God. Christ also gives us peace because we no longer have to prove ourselves to the world. Unlike at the Tower of Babel, we don't have to make a name for ourselves anymore. Christopher Walken writes, seeking to make a name for ourselves condemns us to a punishing regime of ever inadequate performance, ever more forced and filtered self-presentation, and the ever provisional, ever changeable verdict of the social network on the name we have made for ourselves. How much sweeter more peace-bringing, more liberating is it to receive a name from God, child, image, beloved. Christ answers the longing of the human heart for someone to please. Tell me who I am. You are child, image of God, beloved by him through Christ. Finally, becoming a new creation in Christ allows us to reach our full potential. As I said earlier, you might listen to me today and think that, our, that when you become a Christian, your personal identity just kind of disappears. And now it's just Christ alone, he's all that matters, and you don't matter at all. But that's not true at all because Christ, is the, he's the one who created you in the first place. And so he's the one who really unlocks your potential because he makes you a new creation, giving you a new heart, rooting out those sinful desires that really shouldn't define you. He makes you spiritually alive. He gives you his spirit in you to strengthen you and to lead you and to transform your heart to be more like his. Basically, Jesus takes us back to Genesis 1 and restores to us the opportunity to live in the image of God. That's potential. 
And then we discover that all the unique things about us, not counting the sinful things about us, but all the unique things about us are designed by Him for His glory. So if you think back to that first page of your booklet in the seminar and all those things that are important for who you are, Christ doesn't look at those things and say, Psh, wash that away. He looks at those things and says, awesome, take that given to, me by you, given to you by me. Those things are gifts of grace. Now go, love God and love others with those things. That is potential, your real potential. And here's what's even better. Your full potential goes past this life because in Christ, you got resurrection and eternal life. Think about this. From the world's perspective, this life is everything. And so that pressure on you to figure out who you are, dig deep inside, find your dreams, go make it happen. Man, you better get it done because the clock is ticking on you. You're going to die. And you've only got this one shot at it. And the Christian says, no, this life is just the beginning. Life is often frustrating. Life is often disappointing. Life is ultimately cut short by death. And Christians don't ignore that. We groan under those challenges, but we know the resurrection and eternal life are coming. And so even if this life for you is very hard, and even if you are very disappointed with how you've done and how far you've come and what's happened in your life and what your life looks like and what your identity is right now, you're just getting started in Christ. Your resurrection body won't be a different person. It's you, resurrected. And the new heavens and new earth won't be an entirely different kind of thing. It's a new earth made new, where the new you will live with God forever. This life, this little vapor of a life, it's just the beginning of your potential. The beginning of what you can be and do as you love God and love others for the glory of God. And on that day, in the eternal presence of God, with his praises on our tongues, his love pervading our souls and risen bodies, his glory filling our vision, we will never again have any doubt or concern about who we really are. All right, we've got to finish. I hope that I have demonstrated that the world's view of identity is false and damaging. And that the good news of creation in Christ gives us our true identity now and forever. I want to finish up with a favorite verse, a favorite quote, and a final challenge. The verse is 1 Corinthians 15, 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. What a contrast between this and this. In the words of Christopher Walken, and this is the favorite quote, that I referred to. Biblical identity dances to the rhythm of grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. All right, finally, a challenge. This is a word of caution, though it is also a word of encouragement. The Bible teaches that our full identity is going to be finally revealed when Jesus comes again. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 
as the last verse from our scripture reading today, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Jesus will come again, and God will make it clear who belongs to him as his children. Their truest identity will be revealed. And again, that doesn't cancel out the meaning of the other parts of your life. It's just that whether or not you're a child of God is the most important part of your identity. And it's not immediately visible on the outside. You can't look around the stadium at a baseball game and immediately know who is a born-again child of God and who is not. But your spiritual identity is going to be revealed someday. It's going to become clear. If you belong to Christ, then no matter what people have thought about you, no matter what mess you might have made in this life, God is going to look on you with love and say, that child is mine. What encouragement that is. But do you see that in that is also the warning? And it's a warning that Jesus gave several different times in several different teachings, like Matthew 7. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. And Luke 13, he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And Luke 12, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. When Jesus comes again and we all stand before God, the true identity of those who have made something else their God will be revealed. And God will say, I don't know you. And so as we hear the message of Jesus, we must respond by turning from our idolatry, including the idolatry that says, I own me, I define me, I discover me, I do me, and you applaud me. I said at the beginning, there are a few kernels of truth in this, but overall, this is idolatrous. It does not tell the truth about who we really are. It is disastrous, both in this life and for eternity. And so we have to repent of this. We have to repent of having believed what the world says about identity. And we have to come to Christ. You, you turned to God from idols. And in our new cultural religion, that is first and foremost, the idol of self, of me. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So at the beginning, I asked you, what is going to happen to your identity when you die? In Arlington National Cemetery stands the tomb of the unknown soldier, first dedicated in 1921. On the back of the tomb, I don't know if you can quite, if you can read it. Oh yeah, you can read it here. It says, he rests in honor, glory, an American soldier known but to God. The British had actually begun using similar wording earlier during World War I. Every grave of an unknown soldier during that time, during the late teens in Great Britain, was inscribed like this. So these are all over um, the, the British war cemeteries. Can you see the bottom of that? Known unto God. 
Brian Rosner notes that in 1920, so before we created our Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, they created their own Tomb of the Unknown Warrior, they call it, which is um, in Westminster Abbey. Uh, here's, a, here's a picture of it. it is this, it's on the floor, and the, the burial is below it. Um, you can see there's a big inscription down the middle of it, but can you see that there's, there's actually something inscribed around the outside edges? The outside edges have four Bible verses around that tomb of the unknown warrior, and here are the four verses. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Greater love hath no man than this, unknown and yet well known by God, and in Christ shall all be made alive. Wow. You may be completely unknown in this life, or you might go viral and the whole world might hear about you, for better or worse. But your truest identity is in your Creator and your Lord Jesus Christ. It is real, it is eternal. And it doesn't minimize all the rest of who you are as a unique person. It maximizes all that you are for the glory of God forever. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's 1139. The sound booth prayers were answered. We made it through. Take that. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so... If you have questions, if you're thinking, man, that was insulting or offensive or upsetting or something, I'm going to be right here. I'm not going to run high to my office. Um, come ask me. Um, let's talk about it. And pick up these books, 40 Days of Hope and The Restore Study. We would love for you to take those, take those with you. All right. We're going to be done five minutes early. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving strength for us to get through this and to get through it in time. Thank you for answering our prayers. Thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for loving us when we had tried in our folly to push you out of the way and, and actually thought that we could be our own gods. Thank you for loving us before we loved you. Thank you for knowing us before we knew you. Thank you for sending your one and only Son to take the penalty and consequences of our rebellion against you. Thank you for giving us peace, giving us meaning, giving us uh, potential that's going to last forever. Thank you for giving us a foundation for healing these earthly relationships. And thank you for bringing us into a right relationship with you so that in Christ you look on us with love and call us your very own children. We look forward to the day when you will come again and the true revealing of the sons of God will happen. But we pray that you might continue to save and rescue those who are not your children, those who are caught up entirely in the lies of the world's view of identity, and they don't even know it. They've never even considered something else. They are deceived by the deceiver who wants to kill and steal and destroy. And we pray for your truth to set people free. Set us free from the ways in which we have bought into worldly thinking and we didn't even realize it. Set us free to live in the light of your truth and to honor you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.